The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Well, I, uh, I absolutely love Easter, and I know it's not like a surprise what exactly we're going to be talking about together today. Um, but before we actually get into today, I want to take a moment and just tell you about what's next, because starting next week, we're going to begin a brand new series together called Evidence. And this series is all about the evidence, the real evidence that we have for everything that we believe about Jesus and everything we're going to be talking about together today. And if you're here today and you would say that you are not a Christian, or if you're somewhat skeptical about all this, then this series is really perfect for you. I mean, if that is you, there are two things I would like you to know about us as a church. The very first is that we are a church that actually does literally believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, right? It wasn't just his spirit. It wasn't some kind of an illusion. It wasn't a bunch of people who just, you know, so badly wanted to see Jesus that they thought they saw maybe, you know, some guy back there kind of looks like Jesus, you know, maybe from a distance. It wasn't anything like that. We believe that Jesus died. We believe that he was buried. And we believe that he actually rose from the dead physically. And we believe that because of the evidence that we have for that belief. The second thing I would want you to know about us as a church is that if you were actually to come up here, and again, if you're not a follower or you're kind of skeptical, if you were to actually stand up here and you were to say to those of us who do call this place our church home, if you were to tell us why that is, every single one of us, we would say, we get that. We understand that, right? If we grew up in the home you grew up in, if we experienced what you experienced, if we had been treated by people perhaps the way you've been treated by people, maybe had not been exposed to Christianity the way you were not exposed to Christianity, we would all say, we get that, we understand that. And so we're certainly not going to to judge you for that. But if you were actually to say to me, you know, one-on-one, if you were to say, okay, you know, Joe, truth is, I'm not a follower, um, but I'm at least open. I'm at least open to hearing, you know, from you why it is that you think that I should at least consider becoming a follower of Jesus. Then, then see, what I would actually say to you, it wouldn't be about trying to defend the history of the church. I wouldn't try to defend necessarily how people who have called themselves Christians have, have treated certain groups of people or treat certain people today or maybe even have treated you in your past. I wouldn't do any of those things. Instead, what I would do is actually just talk to you about the, the evidence that we have for what we're going to t- be talking about together today. And that evidence is what we're going to look at over the course of the next five weeks together. And during that series, um, during that series on the weekend of April 28th and 29th, we're going to have a very special guest with us in all three of our services. His name is Dr. Gary Habermas. And he is considered to be one of the world's leading researchers on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he's got PhDs in both history and philosophy from Michigan State University. He has spoken, he's given more than 1,500 lectures at 100 different universities all over the world, all on the actual historical evidence that we have for the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you're somewhat skeptical about all this, I would just invite you to come and listen and just consider the evidence. Just consider the evidence. And, and in fact, I would like to invite you personally, and so all of you, you actually have a personal invitation, not only to that whole series, but especially to this day. In fact, that invitation to you is in your bulletin already. So take it home, put it on your refrigerator, and if you can't come back for the whole series, at least come back on the weekend of the 28th. And 29th. But the reason why, the reason why I love Easter, the reason why those of us who are followers of Jesus actually love Easter is because there's actually nothing religious about Easter whatsoever. The story of Easter is not a religious story. Because, see, on Easter, we don't celebrate a teacher, 
We don't celebrate a teaching. We don't celebrate a philosophy. And we certainly don't celebrate a religion. On Easter, we actually celebrate an event that happened, which means that Easter is actually better than religion because Easter goes beyond religion. So let me tell you kind of what I mean by that. In fact, you actually learned about this at some point when you were growing up. See, religion, right, is what develops in that gap between those things in life which are, on one hand, they're undeniable, but on the other hand, they're also unexplainable, right? And so what happened in the ancient world, again, you read about this, things would happen, the seasons would change. And the fact that the seasons would change, that was undeniable. But it was also unexplainable. Because why? Right? Why exactly did the seasons change? One year we'd have plenty of rain, the next year we'd have none. We'd have a whole series of good harvests, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and then suddenly, in one particular year, locusts would come and they would destroy everything. The fact the locusts came... That was undeniable, wasn't it? But it was also unexplainable. Because why? Why did they come in that particular year? And so in the ancient world, there was all this unexplainable data that was out there, right? With harvests, with kings and kingdoms, with battles, with health, with medicine, with all kinds of different things. And in that gap between what was undeniable and at the same time unexplainable, religion was born. And then what you and I, what we think of as science over time, came along and science kind of dismantled entire systems of religious belief, didn't it? Like, like, like you mean to tell me that sound of thunder that we hear up in the sky, that's not, you know, Thor racing around the heavens in his chariot? No, that's not Thor. That sound of thunder that you hear, that's actually caused as a bolt of lightning passes through the atmosphere and the air around that lightning is heated so quickly it causes a sonic boom. That's what makes the sound of thunder. It's not Thor. Well, what about the lightning? I thought lightning was caused by Zeus. No, lightning isn't caused by Zeus, right? Lightning is actually just static electricity. It's a static electrical charge. It's it's a weather system, right? It's not a bunch of angels up in heaven bowling. And see, over time, in that gap between the undeniable and the unexplainable, religion began to crop up. And religion is also an attempt to answer those things which appear to be unanswerable. Questions like, what happens to me after I die? Am I ever going to see my loved ones again? What's the meaning and the purpose of life? See, those are great big unanswerable questions, and they are very fertile ground for religion, because religion also springs up quickly when there appears to be no answer. Because, see, here's something that's true of you. Um, it's, it's true of me. It's, in fact, it's true of every single one of us as people. We don't like the answer nobody knows do we? In fact, if you were to go to the doctor this week to ask them to examine you because you're having a series of symptoms, if that doctor were to examine you and then at the end of that examination, if they were to kind of look at you and say, well, I don't have a clue what's wrong with you. I guess it's just a mystery, right? You're going to go find a different doctor, aren't you? Of course. Of course, because you want to know, right? Because somebody knows, and so you want to know. See, that desire to know, that's actually what drives religion, and that is also precisely why Easter is not religious. Because Easter is not about trying to explain anything or answer anything. In fact, Easter actually occurs at a time in history 
when the Jewish people in the first century, they already thought they had answers to all the unanswerable questions. They thought they already had explanations for everything that was unexplainable. Easter is not an attempt to answer any questions or explain anything. Easter is about an event, which means that Easter is completely non-religious. See, Christianity, you should know this if, if you are a Christian, and you really need to know this if you're not a Christian. Christianity was not birthed as a new answer to age-old questions. Christianity was not birthed as people began to embrace different explanations for the unexplainable. Christianity was not even birthed, as is so often the case historically speaking, as a movement around one individual's teachings. Christianity was actually birthed when a single event happened on earth in a city that you can actually go and visit today. And see, the other thing that's so unusual about Christianity and is so unusual about the resurrection and Easter is this. Listen, at, at this period in time, nobody actually expected for there to be a resurrection, right? Nobody expected nobody. In fact, when you read the accounts of the first followers of Jesus about what happened on that very first Easter, here's what you don't find. You don't find stories about hearing, hearing them say to each other, okay, John, come on, hurry up. We, we don't want to miss Jesus. We don't want to be late. And Martha, come on already. It does not matter what you're wearing. And Peter, no. You don't get to be the first one to see Jesus this time just because you're the oldest. This time it's going to be Mary turn, right? You don't find anything like that. Instead, what we find is, is these first followers of Jesus, they tell us that when Jesus died, they lost faith. When Jesus died, they lost hope. When Jesus died, everyone who was following Jesus, they all unfollowed Jesus. Peter, when he hears Jesus, number one guy, Peter, when he hears the stone has been rolled away at Jesus' tomb, do you know what Peter's response is when he runs to the tomb and he looks inside to find out what's going on? Huh. Wonder what happened in there. Not Jesus must have risen from the dead. No. Who stole the body? That's what Peter says. And not just Peter. Every single one of them, they all tell us in their own words, they never expected. They never expected a resurrection. In fact, something else you should know. At this point in history, most Jewish people, they did not even believe in a resurrection. Many of them actually followed the teachings of a group of, of religious leaders that were known as the Sadducees. And the Sadducees you know, taught that you, you live for the glory of God and, and you live for the pleasure of God. But when you die, it's just over. And so nobody... Nobody was expecting for there actually to be a resurrection. Not Jesus' first followers, not the religious leaders, not even the Jewish people. And so when Jesus' followers actually got to that tomb on that very first Easter, they still did not know what had happened until Jesus actually appeared to them. And then suddenly everything changed. Suddenly these men and these women who thought that, that now that they've crucified our leader, certainly they're going to be coming for us next. Suddenly these men and these women who had spent every single night for the last couple of months since Jesus' crucifixion going from house to house in secret 
trying to figure out how to pick up with the lives that they had left behind more than three years earlier. Suddenly, these people who were terrified and and fearful, suddenly they became bold, courageous followers of Jesus. And and their boldness and their courage, it didn't center on on, on the teachings of Jesus, right? It didn't center on the moral example of Jesus. It did not even center on the miracles of Jesus. Instead, their message, their bold courageous message. It centered on the resurrection of Jesus and they could not stop talking about it. In fact, the only reason, the only reason Christianity made it out of Jerusalem, the only reason it made it out of the Middle East, the only reason it made it out of the first century, the reason you know anything about it today is not because of what Jesus taught. It's because of what Jesus did three days after he was crucified and he was raised from the dead. Now today we're going to spend some time looking at a short section of scripture together that's found in Acts chapter 3. Take out your Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Those uh, You can find um, Acts chapter 3 on page 1694. And in this section of scripture that we're going to look at together this morning, I want you to listen for a couple of things. The first thing that I want you to listen for is, is what is that actual message of these first followers of, of Jesus after after the resurrection. And the second thing I want you to pay very close attention to is actually the details that we find in in this account. Because one of the many reasons that you should take the Bible seriously, if you don't already, is because of all the details that are contained, particularly in these types of narrative accounts. Because what you're going to discover is that this doesn't read like some type of a myth or a fairy tale or a legend or some epic story like you would read about Thor or Zeus. Instead, this was written by just everyday average people who happened to live in the area of where these events actually took place. And Acts chapter 3 takes place just a couple of months after Jesus' resurrection and after news of his resurrection has begun to spread through the city of Jerusalem, which is, again, as a reminder, is right where Jesus was crucified. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says this. One day Peter and John, they were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. Now in the first century when people heard this, as soon as they heard that that name, the temple gate called Beautiful, they were like, oh yeah, I know that spot. My, my, My family and I, you know, we had picnics there when I was a kid. I've been there a hundred times. They knew that this was an actual physical location where where this beggar was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. And so what would happen is every day, this man's friends, they would come and they would take him, and they would carry this beggar and they would leave him at this gate because they knew that certainly people going into the temple were religious people, and religious people would certainly be kind, and religious people would certainly be merciful to a man who was born unable to walk and whose only income was whatever he could get from actually from, from, from actually begging. And so, verse 3, when the beggar saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them, because right, nobody engages a, conversation, a beggar in conversation unless they plan on giving him something. right? So, so of course, this guy thinks he's going to get some cash. But Peter tells him in verse 6, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. 
Now, you got to understand that when people heard that name, right, two months after the crucifixion, Jesus Christ of Nazareth in Jerusalem at the temple, I mean, everybody in the vicinity, they knew exactly who this guy was talking about. It was like, yeah, I remember that just over there a couple of months ago. That's the guy they crucified, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I heard about that. I remember that day. Big storm, as I recall. Kind of weird. Seemed like the clouds came out of nowhere. Really dark. Lots of thunder that day. Really weird. I've heard some rumors about that guy. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Lots of stories about him. See, this was not an unknown name. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And again, this is all taking place right at the temple, within walking distance of where all these events take place. Verse 7, taking the beggar by the right hand, Peter helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk, and then he went with them, with Peter and John, into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God, which was certainly an unusual thing to do during the middle of a prayer service. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him because they had never even seen this guy standing before. And yet all of a sudden, here he is, eyeball to eyeball with them, and they realize, they're like, hey, you're that guy. You're the guy that is usually sitting in the dirt over here every single week, and now we are looking at you face to face. While the beggar, verse 11, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, because, right, these are his new best friends. He's not letting these guys go. All the people were astonished, and they came running into the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Again, another physical location, right? It's as if the author is saying, okay, you can fact-check this whole story if you want. This actually took place. Verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel... Because at this point, a crowd is forming. Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us, at me and John, as if by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk? And then Peter does something kind of interesting, and he uses a phrase. He uses a particular phrase that everybody listening in that crowd that day would have recognized and remembered because he says to them, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. In other words, Peter's saying this. Listen, this is important. He's saying, this is not something new. This is not some new religion that we're here to try to proclaim to you or, or tell you about. He's saying, the God who did this is the very same God that you have always worshipped. In fact, you've always worshipped him right here in this very same building. The God of our fathers has glorified, he says, his servant, Jesus. Now, we're going to pause here for just a second. I want everybody eyes up here. I want you to think with me. What's happened so far? So far, Peter, right, he has, I would argue, rather successfully connected Jesus back to the same God 
that these Jewish people have worshipped not only for their entire lives, but for their entire history as a people, right? 1,500 years or so as of this moment. And Peter has now kind of introduced Jesus right into this equation, hasn't he? And so what, think about this for a second, what would kind of make sense if, if, if Peter's introduced Jesus into this equation with God in front of all these people, right, what, what, what would Jesus, what would Peter actually, what would make sense for him to say next about Jesus? Perhaps that, that the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, you know, the guy who taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, right? Everybody would know that. Peter would, rem- Peter would know that that would be familiar to everybody. Maybe he's going to say that God has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one who taught us, you know, to love our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, that's got to be one of Jesus' top ten. Everybody would recognize that one. Maybe he's going to say that God has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one who taught blessed are the peacemakers, the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody came out for that one. Everybody would remember when Jesus said that. See, see, the point is this. It would be so easy at this point to introduce something that Jesus taught, wouldn't it? Now that he's connected Jesus back to God and he's introduced Jesus into that equation. But Peter doesn't do that. Instead, what Peter does is he goes right for the single event. He goes right for the thing, which is the make it or break it moment for everything these followers of Jesus believe. And because he's Peter, right? he doesn't mince any words when he speaks to these religious leaders and he says to them, you, you handed Jesus over to be killed and you disowned Jesus before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and the righteous one of God and you actually asked for a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life, Peter says. Peter says, Jesus, the, the one that I have just connected to God, your heavenly Father, the same Jesus that you crucified, that you all had crucified just a couple of, of months ago, God, he says, verse 15, has raised him from the dead, and don't miss this, and we, we are witnesses of this. See, here's what Peter and John are saying. This is the message of Easter. We don't simply believe something. We saw something. We're not simply followers of Jesus. We are witnesses of his resurrection. We're not simply believers in what he taught. We're not simply a group of people who have been moved by his moral example or impressed with his teaching. Peter says, no, we're here to tell you that that we are followers and believers in Jesus because, listen, we saw him die, we visited his tomb, and then we saw Jesus living again because Jesus has risen from the dead. You want to know what this is all about, Peter says? This is all about a risen Savior. And remember, this is the very same Peter and John who just two months earlier in this same location, ran away from these same people in fear for their lives, from the temple. But now suddenly they're back at the temple, looking at the same people, the same religious leaders, and suddenly they're not fearful anymore. Suddenly they're bold, suddenly they're courageous, and their boldness and their courage, it isn't centered around the teachings of Jesus, it isn't centered around the personality of Jesus. Instead, it is centered on this one single event, that we celebrate on Easter, an event that has changed everything. 
Because listen, listen. If Easter, if Easter was really just about Jesus being raised from the dead in some spiritual sense, then the truth is today is only about me. It's about me finding some new dimension in in my personal spiritual life. But if Easter is actually about what Peter and John and all the other eyewitnesses say that it's about, that Jesus Christ has physically, right, not spiritually, but physically been risen from the dead, then all of a sudden the the message of Easter, that actually becomes good news for the entire world because Easter is now the definitive reminder Right, that, that in a world where, where injustice and violence and the degradation of humanity is absolutely endemic, that your heavenly Father is not prepared to just sit back and tolerate such things. Do you know what that means? That Jesus has risen from the dead? If you're a follower of Jesus, that means your hope, your hope is not in vain. Your prayers are not in vain. The the loved ones that that you've laid to rest, that you long to see again, your longing is not in vain. Your generosity is not in vain. Your kindness is not in vain. Your sacrifice, your self-control, your discipline, your worship, none of that is in vain. That as a follower of Jesus, the the things that break the heart of God, the things that break your heart, the, the vision that God has placed on your heart as a follower of Jesus, the reason you can serve and the reason you can follow, the the reason you can believe. And the reason you can hope is because your Savior, Jesus, His teachings didn't just rise from the dead. His Spirit didn't just rise from the dead. His body came out of the tomb because Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. And see, if you're here today, and you, and you are, you're just skeptical about this whole thing, and if you're honest, that your big issue with this whole Christianity thing is just, you know, how can Jesus really, I mean, how can He just really be the only way? I mean, how can it really be only Jesus? See, if that's you, Peter actually answers that question for you in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 4, and he tells us this. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. See, here's what Peter's saying. He's telling us this. Listen, the reason we can't just shut up about Jesus, the reason we can't stop talking about his resurrection, the reason we keep bringing up his name over and over and over again is because nobody else has ever done this before. Right? It's like if, if you'll just give us the list of names of all the other people you know, who have predicted their own death and their own resurrection and then you know, actually pulled it off, right? then we'll talk about those names too, Peter's saying. Because I'd like to resurrect from the dead someday. I I would like to know what happens when I die. I want to know, am I going to see my loved ones again? And see, no one else has ever done this before. No one except Jesus. And so Peter says there just is, like, no other name. Like, literally, there is no other name. There is no other name on earth or in heaven by which we, you and I, can actually have the confidence to have a relationship with God. No other name than Jesus. Because he is. He is the servant of that very same God 
And he has come not simply to teach us how to be more like God, but he has actually come to demonstrate God's power through his own personal resurrection. See, that's why the resurrection is such a big deal. That's why Easter is not about religion. It's about an event, an event that changed everything. And see, here's the best part about Easter as it relates to you and to to me personally. Because for 2,000 years, people have been sharing this very same story. And just as uh, there was a radical change in the lives of those first followers of Jesus back in Jerusalem, see, the truth is people's lives have been changed ever since. People's broken lives have been transformed ever since. Not simply because of the teachings of Jesus, even though those are wonderful, amazing, powerful things that all have application for every single one of us, but because of this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because this event confirmed that when Jesus died, he did not simply have his life taken from him. It proved that he actually gave it away and that he laid it down. And that he laid it down, not for his sin, because he didn't have any, but for my sin and for your sin. And because he really was who he claimed to be, God actually raised him from the dead. And so as we wrap up together our time this morning, I want to give to you an opportunity to actually transfer your trust Because that's what it actually means when we talk about following Jesus. It means transferring your trust. It it, it means saying, I'm no longer going to trust in my goodness to get to God. I'm no longer going to trust in my church attendance to get to God. I'm not even going to trust any longer in in my own good intentions to get me to God. Instead, I'm, I'm placing my trust not in all of those other things, but just in one simple thing, in the name of Jesus. And see, by transferring our trust, that's how we actually receive from Jesus the gift and the promise of eternal life. That's how you can actually have the confidence to know you can lie in bed at night, and even though things may not be right in your world or certainly not in the world around you, that you actually have the assurance of God's love you have the assurance of his forgiveness, and you have the assurance that comes from having an actual relationship with him through his son, Jesus. And so today, as we close our time together this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer. Because see, if while I was talking today, if something inside you kind of went, you know what? I think I get it. I think I understand it. I I think I, I even believe it. See, the truth is that wasn't me. That was the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit giving you faith and actually leading you to place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. And so I want to give you the opportunity to pray with me this morning. And saying a certain prayer is not what makes you a Christian, right? Prayer is just talking to God. Prayer is just expressing to God that the the gift of faith that he has actually given to you and to us, that that faith that he has given us is actually in his Son, your Savior, your resurrected Savior, Jesus. And so I'm going to ask that we all pray together. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads, and we're going to, you're going to actually 
I'm going to have you say these words after me as we wrap up our time together this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I believe you are my Heavenly Father. I believe Jesus is your Son. And I believe you sent Jesus into this world to pay for the sin of the world and to pay for my sin. All of my trust and all of my faith is in Jesus alone. Thank you for receiving me into your family. Father, we pray all this in the incredible, powerful, resurrected name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And everyone said together, Amen.